you want to, go ahead and open up to Hebrews chapter 1. We're going to look at a few passages in Hebrews tonight. As you're turning there, just just a little review from last week. Last week, um, we looked at Mark chapter 1. The, the title of this series is Jesus Changed Everything. And last week, we looked at a passage which I think is important in terms of it gives us a response that Jesus wants His people, His disciples to have to Him, to His truth, and so forth. And there in Mark chapter 1, we saw how Jesus went out and proclaimed uh, the good news of God, uh, telling everybody the kingdom is at hand. And then if you remember, He said, uh, you must repent and believe in the good news. And I had some really great questions um, last week after that uh, in terms of some of the things we talked about. And let me just say that uh, I talked about repentance uh, in the Greek being a total change of mind. You've you got to change the way you're looking and thinking about everything. And then the second thing that Jesus tells them to do is they have to believe in the good news. And uh, there I said that their belief is uh, very akin to trust. They're going to have to trust Jesus as they go forward from there. And, and uh, that is a, as far as I can tell, that, is a, that, that process, repenting and believing, turning and trusting, as I said, those two things go hand in hand. Uh, Paul, writing to the Thessalonian church, he said, you have turned from idols in order to uh, worship the living God. So as, as we're turning away from all that's untrue, all that's not in line with the Lord God and the Lord Jesus, uh, we are also trusting in Him and we're following Him wherever He leads us. And that's the fourth step. Jesus then called for the disciples to follow Him, you remember. And He'll make them into fishers of men. He'll turn them into something uh, greater than what they were at that point. And those are several themes we're going to come back to uh, as we go through and develop them and add to them. Tonight, in the letter to the Hebrews, um, the reason I said we're, we were going to start there in Mark 1 last week is because Jesus gives us some very difficult things to deal with uh, as His followers. And when, when I think about the difficulty of following Jesus, and particularly when I think about it in the context of His first, earliest followers, uh, there's no greater letter, I think, that deals with this issue in the New Testament other than the letter to the Hebrews. And as you're, as you're opening up to Hebrews chapter 1, let me just give you a little bit of context uh, over why I think this letter was written. I think this letter... Uh, if you've studied it before, it's written, well, first of all, it's called to the Hebrews. You see that? This is written to a group of Jewish believers, Jewish followers of the Lord Jesus. And I think the issue that these early followers are dealing with is, uh, as I said last week, Jesus has literally kicked over the apple cart as far as concerns what God is revealing about His new work, uh, the changes that have been brought about by Jesus' death, burial, and res- resurrection, all the implications of that. And these early Hebrew Christians are wrestling with uh, how do we just let go of the old ways? How do we let go of the old traditions, right? These are Hebrew Christians who had grown up within Judaism and they had been taught very, very specific things about their relationship with God and how they're related to Him. And at the center of that is the temple in Jerusalem and the priesthood and the sacrifices. And as you know, if I could just jump ahead and and give a spoiler, uh, Jesus brought an end to all those things. 
He, he, he completed what those things were looking forward to. And the argument that the writer of the letter to the Hebrews is going to make is, is that in Jesus we've been given a greater and more perfect high priest than any of the descendants of Aaron. We've been given a greater and more perfect sacrifice, better than any blood of any animal could have ever been provided. And, based, and, and on top of all that, uh, all that's been promised to us in a greater and more perfect covenant with greater and more perfect promises. And so the writer of Hebrews is going to make all these points very, very pointedly in this letter because these early Hebrews are dealing with the fact, well, gosh, when I sin now, there's uh, nothing I do anymore. And by the way, I think these are probably Hebrew Christians that grew up close to the temple, close enough to where they could take part in at least uh, Yom Kippur, the, the Day of Atonement. If you remember, um, the Lord taught uh, in the law that one day out of the year, the high priest would go into the temple, into the Holy of Holies, and he would go and he would take blood and he would make a covering first for his sins and then for the sins of all the people. And so that blood would cover over the sins of the people so that God could remain in their midst and His holiness was protected. And how long did that last? Anybody know? A year. We've got to do the next thing the next year. And after that, another year. And after that year, the next year. Uh, think about how many sacrifices were given from the time of Moses to the time of Jesus. In that roughly 1,500 year span that's there. Endless spilling of blood, endless spilling of blood, endless spilling of blood. And now, Jesus has come and says, we're not doing that anymore. (laughs) Now think about that for just a second. Your whole life, you have grown up completely convinced that what Moses was instructed, had instructed us through the law, concerning the temple and the sacrifices and the priesthood and my relationship with God and what I needed to do to be right with Him. Now Jesus has come and says, that's all at an end. Now there's something entirely different. Uh, My brother-in-law put a question up on Facebook this week, and the question was real simple. What would you do if all of a sudden you found out most everything you believed in was wrong? That would be difficult. That's what these Hebrew Christians are dealing with. Not that it's wrong. Let me clarify that. Not that it's wrong, but that it's come to an end and there's something better now. So, so this is their, their call to follow Jesus into some very, very deep, for them, difficult, um, traumatic waters. And so look at Hebrews 1 with me. Let me show you how this writer begins to uh, address this problem. And I'm going to have you kind of work through the letter of Hebrews with me tonight. We're going to look at some key passages. Uh, I'm going to read some fairly, um, not, not too long, but some fairly lengthy passages and just make some very basic comments because tonight we're going to lay the foundation for three or four topics that we're going to be developing over the next several weeks together. So Hebrews chapter 1 Verses 1 through 4, if you'll look there, very similar in one sense to to John chapter 1, some different implications. But if you'll look there, the writer begins with this. Long ago, God spoke to the fathers by the prophets at different times and in different ways. But now, in these last days, He has spoken to us in His Son, And God has appointed him heir over all things and made the universe through him. The sun is the radiance of God's glory and the exact expression of his nature, sustaining all things by his powerful word. 
Now, after making purification for sins, look at that. Let that burn in for just a second. After making purification for sins, he, Jesus, Christ, sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. And so he has become much higher in rank than the angels because the name he has inherited is far superior to theirs. Now, this is the beginning of the letter. And the very first thing that this speaker wants to do, by the way, Hebrews is probably a sermon. It was, it was, it's, it's probably unique in the New Testament in that it wasn't first written down to be a letter. This was probably a sermon that was delivered to this people group. Uh, there's a lot of indications within this letter that that was the case. And so this speaker, he begins very, very powerfully. And if you'll notice, he, he's making one central point here, that whatever God had said in the past, if I could kind of paraphrase where he's going with it this way, whatever God had said in the past, all those truths and everything that he had revealed, right, through the prophets in different times and in different ways, now that's been superseded in that he has spoken to us in his son, right? And that, now that, that's going to be the major theme to the rest of this book. Whatever he had revealed before is now going to be superseded by the coming of his son and by God speaking to us in his son. And in almost every chapter, that main theme is developed in one way or another. Uh, in the first chapter, uh, apparently there was some issue of Jesus' relationship to the angels. And so in chapter 1, uh, this speaker makes an argument, and no, Jesus is not an angel, he is the Son. And in fact, is far greater than any of the angels, and so forth. Uh, in, in chapter 2, he makes a lot of points here about the Lord Jesus' relationship both to God and to us as human beings. I'm going to come back and treat that separately uh, probably next week in uh, the way Jesus is a mediator and a representative for us. Then, if you look in chapter 3 with me, he, he starts to get us into uh, the main point that he is now going to develop over the next several chapters in this letter. And in Hebrews chapter 3, verse 1, he says, Therefore, holy brothers and companions in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus the apostle and high priest of our confession. He was faithful to the one who appointed him, just as Moses was in all God's household. So here, the writer, the speaker, calls us to focus on Jesus, think about him, and he uses a really interesting term. He first of all calls him the apostle. You see that? This is one of the very, I I think this is the only place in the New Testament where Jesus is specifically referred to as an apostle. Um, Now, the the theme shows up all throughout the Gospel of John specifically. An apostle is simply someone, um, in the biblical sense, who is sent to represent God. To bring a message to the people, represent God to the people, uh, bring a new message. So when Jesus picks the twelve and calls them apostles, you remember he then entrusts them to carry the message of the kingdom out as as he had been preaching. So really interesting uh, title given to him there. But then the, the second one, 
uh, the high priest of our confession. Now, the writer is going to spend the next several chapters developing this idea that we're going to focus on this week about how Jesus is a greater and more perfect high priest than any priest that showed up in the line of Aaron. Now, again, building on an Old Testament foundation. If you remember... The people of Israel, when the Lord gave them the law and the instruction, the Torah, through Moses, he established the temple and he established a priesthood to go in and serve in that temple. And, and let me just say, I could, boy, I could speak for hours on this one topic. But when the Lord did that, and you remember this happens at Mount Sinai, there is a critical turn that happens at Mount Sinai that a lot of people miss. And that is, if, if you look at the narrative of that, it seems that as the Lord has rescued the people of Israel out of Egypt, if you remember this, they've been in slavery for 400 years. The Lord has redeemed them out from Egyptian bondage. He is now taking them back to the land of promise, the land that He promised Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, their forefathers, that that land would belong to them and that they would live in it and there they would, uh, the Lord would establish his relationship with them. And so now the Lord has redeemed them out of Egypt. They're headed back to Israel and they come to Mount Sinai. And if you remember, the, the Lord says, I'm going to meet with y'all on Sinai. And it seems to be in the narrative that he wants to reaffirm the promises that he makes to Abraham and turn Israel into a kingdom of, and that preposition is very important, a kingdom of priests. And, and when, you, when we hear that, in fact, the Lord tells that to Moses, this is what I'm going to do. If you will be careful to listen and, and obey everything that I tell you, you will be a kingdom of priests. Now, what does that seem to imply? It seems to imply the whole nation will be a priesthood, right? But is that what happens? No, because they fail at Mount Sinai. The Lord tells them, listen, when you all hear the trumpet and, and you see me descend on the mountain, I want you to come up and meet me on the mountain and I'll reaffirm the covenant with you. But what do they do? They hear the trumpet and they stand at a distance and they tremble and they're afraid and they say, Moses, you go up because if we go up, he'll kill us if we go up on the mountain. And the Lord says, Moses, you come up and talk to me. But yeah, if they come up now, I will kill them. And the reason is they were from the very word go. <laughs> They were not careful to listen to the voice of the Lord and to do everything that He commanded. So at that point, Moses goes up the mountain and he begins to receive the Torah, the instruction. And part of that instruction is Israel will have a tabernacle where God will dwell in their midst and there will be a priesthood that serves that tabernacle. But not everybody in Israel will be part of that priesthood. Instead, that priesthood will come from the line of Aaron. Do you remember this? And the descendants of Aaron would work in that priest, uh, as the priesthood for that tabernacle. Serving the Lord, offering incense and, and offerings and doing all the various things that the Lord would require them to do in the tabernacle and later the temple to maintain his relationship with them. And out of the sons of Aaron, there would be one who would be picked to be the high priest and he would be preeminent among the other priesthood. He would be the one man who would go into the innermost sanctum of the tabernacle, later the temple into the Holy of Holies and offer the offerings on the Day of Atonement, the blood that would cover the sins of the people that were committed in that year. 
until the next year came. And so this, this priesthood that finds its lineage in Aaron uh, lasted for, you know, for 1,400 years until Jesus comes. And when Jesus comes, as the writer says here, he has come as a high priest to us. Now, listen to this. Look with me to chapter 4. And the writer is going to describe what this high priest is, who this high priest is, Jesus, as a high priest for us. And in chapter 4, verses 14, 15, and 16, a very short summary statement that this writer is going to spend until chapter 10 of this book developing. But everything he's going to develop is right here in this short statement. It's a powerful statement. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 14, he says, Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast to the confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tested in every way as we are, yet without sin. Now look at verse 16. Therefore, let us approach the throne of grace with boldness, so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us at the proper time. So this is what the writer of Hebrews is going to argue now. He's going to argue that Jesus is an entirely new kind of high priest. And in the next several chapters, he's going to say, and this is really interesting because Jesus is not from the line of Aaron, from the tribe of Judah. There, there's no priestly line there. But in fact, David in Psalm 110 tells us that when the Messiah comes, he will be from an entirely different priestly order from the line of Melchizedek. And he picks one of the most obscure characters in the whole Old Testament. Right? Y'all remember who Melchizedek is? He is the high priest of Salem that Abraham, way back in the days of Abraham, Abraham paid tithes and tributes to after the Lord God had given him victory over the kings in the valley region and so forth. And uh, Abraham goes in and worships before Melchizedek. And there uh, he's described as, we don't know where he came from, we don't know why he's there. He has no beginning of days, no ending of days. He is simply the, the king priest of Salem. This really interesting figure. He's, he's a priest of the one true God. Before there is an Aaronic priesthood, before Moses, before the giving of the Torah and the law on Mount Sinai, here's Melchizedek. And what the writer of Hebrews says is Jesus is in the line of Melchizedek, a completely different order of priesthood, a, diff- a completely different order of priest. In chapter 6, he, he develops some of those ideas. He really gets to his main points in chapter 7, uh, if, if you'll look there with me. Um, just one short verse, uh, just a couple of short verses that I want to read with you. In fact, at the very end of chapter 6, uh, if you're there, uh, chapter 6, verse 20, the last verse in chapter 6, here he talks about Jesus has entered there, uh, talking about the heavenly sanctuary. I'll talk more about that in just a second. He has entered there on our behalf as a forerunner because he has become a high priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. Then chapter 7, 
uh, the first several verses down to verse 10, uh, the writer goes through and he, he describes who this uh, historical figure Melchizedek was. And then he makes the argument in verse 11 through 15 that when the Levitical priesthood, that is the descendants of Aaron, uh, if, if they could have attained perfection, then there wouldn't have been a need for any other priesthood, particularly one that's in the line of Melchizedek. So he makes the point that the priesthood under Aaron was never meant to be a perfect thing. The Lord was, was moving Israel to where they needed to be, but that temple and that tabernacle and that priesthood and those sacrifices, they were always temporary. They could never accomplish the real purposes that the Lord God wanted to accomplish. And so there in chapter 7, verse 18, this is what he says. This is the conclusion that he comes to. He says, so uh, this previous command is annulled. That is the command that Aaron should be the high priest. This previous command is annulled because it was weak and unprofitable for the law perfected nothing. But a better hope is introduced through which, now look at this next phrase, we draw near to God. Let me tell you what I think is at the heart of this letter. And this is at the heart of so many people's experience with the Lord God. What do we have to do to truly draw near to God? What do I need to do in order that I can have a close intimate relationship with the Lord God as close as he will allow how do I get there and here the writer says there's a better hope that we have in Jesus Jesus can give us a relationship and a a proximity to the Lord God that Aaron and the priesthood could never accomplish and therefore it was temporary it was only passing and it was only looking forward to the coming of Jesus so what did Jesus do uh, that makes him a better priest. Look over, uh, just turn your page probably. Uh, at the end of chapter 7, the writer describes what kind of priesthood we really need. And in verse 26, in verse 26, he describes the high priest that we need to accomplish the purposes that the Lord God intends for us. And he says this. For this is the kind of high priest that we need, holy, innocent, undefiled, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. I could spend three hours talking about the qualifications just in that one verse. Here he's describing Jesus. He is holy. He is innocent. He is undefiled. He's separated from sinners. And he's exalted above the heavens. I love that statement. The highest thing you can think of, and Jesus is exalted above that. Right? (laughs) Uh, Now, look at what he goes on to say. He says he, he doesn't need to offer sacrifices every day, as high priests do, first for their own sins, then for those of the people. Instead, he did this once for all when he offered himself for the law appoints as high priest men who are weak. But the promise of the oath, which came after the law, appoints a son who has been perfected forever. Here his argument is Jesus has done something that no 
ordinary priest could do. It's really interesting tonight as we read through the Westminster Confession. Uh, and there was no pre-planning on this, but, but we're focusing on the section that talks about why must Jesus be both God and man? Uh, what qualified, uh, what defines Jesus' role as priest? What defines his role as king? What defines his role as prophet? And here, this is the very thing that the writer of Hebrews is developing for us. What makes Jesus a different type of high priest? And here his argument is, is that he has accomplished something that no other human priest could ever do based on who he is. Perfect, without sin, exalted above the heavens. Look with me over to one more, uh, two more passages. One fairly short. If you look to not, uh, chapter 9, verse 23. And again, y'all, uh, I know we're covering a lot of territory, but many of these things we're going to come back and develop uh, in the next two or three weeks. Tonight I just want to give us the context for thinking about what I think is, is the central uh, key idea that binds everything else together that we're going to be looking at. So in Hebrews chapter 9, verse 23, he, he starts with this statement that seems uh, difficult. Notice what he says. He says, Therefore it was necessary for the copies of the things in the heavens to be purified with these sacrifices, that is, uh, the offering of the blood of animals, but the heavenly things themselves to be purified with better sacrifices than these. Now press pause for just a second. This, this is something that, that, that I don't hear preached in the church in general anymore, because a lot of people run away from the letter to the Hebrews. It's a difficult letter. If you've ever read the whole thing, there are many difficulties in it. It's, it's based um, entirely in the Hebrews' scriptures and a lot of people are are afraid to get into this thing because it's it is a difficult letter there's no doubt about it but one of the main arguments that this writer makes in this section that we're in is that he makes a contrast between the the old way where the animal sacrifices the blood was used to cover over the sins in the tabernacle and the temple but jesus did not enter into an earthly temple to offer his sacrifice, to, to apply his blood. And where does he give it? He applies his blood in the very heavenly temple itself. The temple that's in the heavens where the Lord God dwells. And if you remember, the earthly tabernacle and the earthly temple was simply built on the pattern of the actual heavenly temple. Have you all heard that before? It's a wild idea for some people. But there is a, a, a temple in the heavens, where the Lord God actually dwells. And as far as we can tell, there's a holy place, and then there's a most holy place. And I think that's probably where the throne of the Lord God is, in the present order of things. And when Jesus uh, gives His sacrifice, He actually takes His blood into the heavenly realm, and that's where His blood is applied. In the heavenly realm, in the heavenly temple, cleansing the place of the heavenly temple. That's what he's going to develop here in just a second. It's, it's, that's a completely mind-blowing idea. It's also really interesting to me that if you remember, if you, if you read through the Torah, when you would bring a sacrifice to uh, the tabernacle in Moses' day, you would actually kill the sacrificial animal outside the gate of the temple complex. And then the priest would take the blood of that animal and he would go back in and he would pl- apply it wherever it needed to be applied for whatever sacrifice it is that you're giving uh, inside the temple itself. 
Uh, the same thing happens with Jesus. When Jesus dies on the cross, and y- y'all, this is going to sound crass, and I don't mean it to sound crass, but that's where the sacrifice is made. Just as a sacrificial animal was killed outside the temple, so on earth, Jesus' blood is spilled, but the application of his blood takes place in the heavenly realm. Now think about that for a second. Think about that. What does that mean? The writer of Hebrews is going to use an awesomely large idea for us in just a minute. And he's going to say that because of this, Jesus has obtained eternal redemption. Eternal redemption. One sacrifice, one time, for all time, and nothing else needs to be done. That's it. Finished. Right? Look at what he says. Go on. Keep on reading with me. 24. For the Messiah, Christ, did not enter a sanctuary made with hands, which was only a model of the true one, but he entered into heaven itself, so that he might now appear in the presence of God for us. And he did not do this to offer himself many times, as the high priest enters the sanctuary yearly with the blood of another. Otherwise, he would have had to suffer many times since the foundation of the world. But he has appeared one time at the end of the ages for the removal of sin by the sacrifice of himself. Now stop right there. This is where Jesus changes everything. That one sentence. And I hope you noticed what he said there. Let me read it one more time to you. Let me see if you can pick up on the difference. This is uh, at the end of verse 26, last sentence in verse 26. But now he, Christ, has appeared one time at the end of the ages for the removal of sin by the sacrifice of himself. If you go back and you read Leviticus 16, which I think is in the background of what the writer, of, of the speaker of Hebrews is meditating on here. Leviticus 16 contains all the instruction about the Day of Atonement and the application of the blood and the, uh, the bulls that are killed and all these different things. But throughout that passage, you're, you're going to see a, a repetition of a word. And most of your translations have the word uh, atonement here. Uh, and I think that's an unfortunate translation. He, it'll say something like, "Now he collected, he will collect the blood, and he shall make an atonement for his sins. He shall collect the blood, and he shall make an atonement for the sins of the people." In Hebrew, the word that he uses is is, is based on the root to cover. He will make a covering for his sins. He will make a covering for the sins of the people. Now, what does that tell us that the blood is doing? That the blood of those bulls and goats and everything else, what is it doing? Is it taking care of the sin problem? No, we're just throwing a blanket over it till next year. We're just covering over it temporarily. This is just a covering so that the Lord God will see that blood and it'll tell him, okay, you've done what I've asked you to do. And listen, y'all, there's a lot of complexities going on over there. And let let me tell you that as you read through those books and as we read through this, one of the questions that the Lord never answers is why these things work this way in his reality. Why must there be the shedding of blood? What does it actually do? Now, we know that the life is in the blood and the blood belongs to the Lord. But let me just say simply, in this universe, all it says is, is that the Lord has given us the blood to make 
use in the covering and ultimately the removal of sin. All those animal bloods could do is simply cover over the sins of the people. What has Jesus' blood done here? He has removed it. Yeah, he has, uh, big word, propitiated the Lord God in it. He has actually removed sin. Now think about that for a minute. He has removed the sin problem. You and I, we don't have to go daily before a priest or before a priesthood and offer blood, 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 blood. What does Jesus call us to do? And this is hard. He calls us to trust in Him. Do you really believe that I've made this sacrifice for you? Do you really believe that my blood has been enough to not just cover your sin, but to remove it? Now, now next week I'm going to come back and, and, and talk about an awesome application of this, and that is not only does Jesus remove our sin objectively in terms of our relationship with the one true God, but it should affect us to the sense that we have a clean conscience before the Lord God, that His blood goes further than the animal sacrifices, and that it can purify our consciences. And we're going to talk about that next week. Tonight, though, I just want you to focus on this last thing, that Jesus' blood, his sacrifice, has actually removed sin. Now, let's finish this out, and we'll stop here. Verse 27. He says, and so just as is it, appointed, it is appointed for people to die once, and after this comes the judgment, so also the Messiah, Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to bear sin, but to bring salvation to those who are waiting for Him. See that? So what Jesus did in His first first earthly ministry was to take care of the sin problem, was to remove the sins of His people. When He returns, it's going to be for salvation. That is to complete, uh, to bring the completion of all the work that He's doing in us now. But let me just say tonight, the the thing that I hope you'll do is you'll go and you'll meditate. Uh, And I would encourage you, read through uh, the letter to the Hebrews. Over the next week, we're going to be coming back to this over the next couple of weeks, tying in some things that we've read here tonight. Uh, but to me, this, um, this key truth, the fact that Jesus comes and He actually removes sin, that, that, he, that he cleanses, yes, He purifies, yes, but that He removes sin, that is, He takes it out of the equation, He wipes the slate clean, is something where Jesus literally changes the core mechanics of our relationship with the Lord God. Everything else we're going to talk about hinges on this one thing. Um, I was I was in a discussion uh, with with some uh, in, in a small guys group that I've been part of for several years uh, last year, and a guy came in. He said, "You know, I am really struggling." He said, uh, "I was talking to a guy the other day, and he said this guy's a pagan, but he is you know he's basically a good guy. He, you know, he's basically doing." Uh, the things that are right and whatnot, you know? And he said, I was just thinking about, um, so why wouldn't that guy make it into the kingdom? Why wouldn't that guy make it, you know, uh, be saved and so forth and so on? I mean, I mean, why does he really need Jesus? And he said this. Why does he really need Jesus? Is if, if, he's, if he's already living the way that Jesus would want his disciples to live, Right? And I said, well, there's one big thing, right? Only Jesus can remove his sin. 
And until that sin is removed, there is an unbreakable barrier between him and the Lord God. And works can't do that. Works can't do that. I can be a good, and y'all listen, this is, I'm, I'm going to try, I'm going to say this and we're going to run out of here. There's going to be a lot of good people in hell if y'all did the hell study with us back in the summer. Just because you're good ethically and morally, that doesn't necessarily mean anything. The issue is, do you trust Jesus to remove the sin that is a barrier between you and God? That's the thing that Jesus calls us into. And y'all, there's nothing else that can do it. There's no other option. There's no other way. Uh, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. As I read through this, it's a very powerful call, but but in the end, um, I think about something that John Stott said in his book uh, on the cross, uh, I think in the first couple of chapters. He said, as we come to, because the whole book is writing about what Jesus accomplished for us on the cross. And, and I love what he said. He said, you know, as we're going to be getting into these issues, he said, ultimately, we're not going to be able to answer all the questions of the how and the why and everything else. He said, this is what the cross calls us to do. We simply must come to the foot of the cross, meditate on the great cost that Jesus paid for us in his blood, and bow down in awe and worship. That's what the cross calls us to do. It's not so we can get our mind around it. It's so we can simply come to Jesus and worship Him and give Him praise and thankfulness that He has done for us what no human priest could do, what no animal sacrifice could do. He's done it for us and He's given us the benefits of it freely, without cause, simply by trusting Him, giving ourselves over to Him. And in that way, He changed everything. He changed everything. And He changes everything for us as we follow Him in that. Y'all, let me close this in prayer and we'll be dismissed. Father, we thank you for your word. And tonight we've just, we've kind of skimmed over the surface of so many deep and uh, absolutely glorious truths. And Father, um, I pray that in my meager attempt to to try to bring uh, some understanding to some of these things, that you would take my words and through the work of your Spirit, you would work in the hearts and minds of everyone who's heard me speak tonight, that uh, you would draw them to yourself, draw them into your Word, uh, and that your Word would focus them on the person of our Lord Jesus. We want to be a people who are based in the Word, but who are focused on Jesus. And so, Father, we give ourselves to you with that in mind. And everything that we have revealed to us is meant to bring us to a point of worship and a point of awe, where we simply look at what's been done for us, the great sacrifice that Jesus has made for us, uh, all that he's done for us. And then gives us his life and his goodness, his every blessing that we can think of. As Paul says, every blessing in the heavenly realm has been given to us in Christ. And we thank you for that, that you've revealed these things to us so that we can have hope, so we can know who we are, we can know where we're headed, and live as people who shed light on all of these things, on all of these truths for everybody that we meet on a daily basis. So, Father, make us worthy of this high calling with which you've given to us and help us to love you with all that we are so that your goodness will be displayed in everything that we do, everything that we say. 
uh, everything that we put our hands to, that the name of Jesus may be lifted up. He himself is exalted above the heavens, and his name is the name that is above every other name. And we worship him, we give thanks to him for all that he's done for us. Amen.